Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to share with you today the recording of the live episode we did at Anesthesiology 2021 this past weekend. We were in front of a live audience for the first time ever in San Diego, and I am going to share that audio with you now. It was a really a great discussion and a great time and a great place with a great audience. So enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am absolutely thrilled to be here with two amazing guests, Dr. Doug Bacon and Dr. Aditi Ambardikar. We are live from Anesthesiology 2021 in San Diego. It's incredible. It's beautiful. It's sunny out. And for the first time ever, we have a live audience here. Give it up for you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm absolutely thrilled. We were supposed to have our first ever live episode in April of 2020. Of course, we had to cancel that because of COVID and haven't been able to do it again. But now I am really grateful to ASA for hosting us, for supporting us and letting us do this here. I'm incredibly grateful to our guests and, of course, to all of you for being here in the audience. So we're going to get started. I'm going to introduce our two guests and then I'm going to take about 15 to 20 minutes to chat with each of them and then we're going to open it up. This is a live mic here, so we're going to have audience Q&A. You guys can ask the guests anything you want. And then, of course, we will have random recommendations for you at the end. All right, so let me introduce. We have with us Dr. Aditi Ambardikar, who is an associate professor and the residency program director at UT Southwestern. I see some of her residents over there coming out to support her. She is also, as I said, the residency program director. She is the director of burn anesthesia at Parkland Hospital and specializes in pediatric burn anesthesia. She is also the chair of the Anesthesiology Review Committee for the ACGME. So for the residents in the audience, that means she has quite a lot of influence over your life. And if there's any program directors in the audience, that means she has total and complete control (laughs) over your life. Good thing is she is a kind and generous person. And we are really thrilled to have her with us today. She also is an oral board examiner for the ABA, so as is Dr. Bacon. So both of them 
Those of you who are residents may see them down in Raleigh when you take your applied exam. Hopefully, they will be kind to you. <laughs> Dr. Bacon has a long and illustrious career. He is the chair currently at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, chair of anesthesiology. He's also a professor there, of course. And he is a real guru and has an interest and always has in history, and especially the history of anesthesiology. In 2012, he actually was named the laureate of anesthesiology history by the Wood Museum of Anesthesia History, which made him the youngest person ever to be named with that honor. So really impressive. He has, he and his wife have one daughter, four sons, and four rough collies, which makes for quite a full house, I am sure, but very impressive. My wife and I are still trying to figure out how to do three, so I am very impressed. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here. Let's start with you, Aditi. So thanks again. Let me start by asking you to just give us in the audience here a little bit of background on how you got where you are, what do you do, what's your everyday kind of look like, and what would you recommend for people interested in kind of that kind of path that you've taken? So thank you for having me. Um, if I had to describe myself, as my residents know, so I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist by training. Um, I'm a mother to two boys that keep me super busy. I'm the spouse to an EP cardiologist who works probably 100 hours a week, a residency program director, and a burn anesthesiologist. So my clinical time is spent two days at Parkland, the storied Parkland Hospital, taking care of burn patients. Um, I spend a day a week at the Children's Hospital and um, spend a lot of time running the residency program, being available to my residents, as I'm sure you know as well. When I'm not in the hospital, I'm usually working on ACGME work related to running residency programs and making the rules that come down from the ACGME functional and acceptable to our community, and uh, do a little bit of education-based research. So studying simulation, um, studying feedback, and actually studying a little bit about pediatric burn anesthesia as well. So I do all three things, teacher, clinician, a little bit of a researcher. You stay busy, absolutely. So give us an idea, because I think people are familiar with obviously clinical work and, and you know obviously the residents in the audience have all, they all have program directors, they know that program directors and faculty have an idea, but I think the ACGME piece is something people don't know a lot about. How much time do you spend, on average, on your ACGME work? So when I was a volunteer, so I, my tenure on the ACGME is six years, plus an extra two since I just got voted the chair. I spend probably, as a chair of the committee, three to four hours a week uh, negotiating questions that come out from the community. Right now, we, spent, we are spending a lot of time rewriting the milestones for various subspecialties within anesthesiology. We have very long meetings looking at your programs and how your programs are running. Um, and so all that probably boils down to three to five hours a week. Okay. So not insubstantial. Right. And then I know that comes in chunks because you guys have official meetings where probably these days virtually, but you spend you know a day or two straight yep. working on that. Uh, in my role, I'm in Chicago pre-COVID once a month. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's quite a lot. Um, all right. And so let's talk about program leadership. You've done, you run an anesthesiology program, you run the review committee. How, and, and you're still pretty early in your career. So talk about that journey. How did you get where you are? A lot of people in the audience may be thinking, you know, they'd like to be in programmatic leadership one day. They may want to be a program director. They want to be involved with the ACG. How, how do you recommend people walk that path if they're interested? So I had to think about this a little bit when you sent me the invitation. And I think it, I could sum it up in three phrases taking advantages of most of the opportunities that came my way. And I know that goes against a lot of the wellness and the boundary setting we've been hearing about lately, but 
really taking a lot of those opportunities to heart and learning about whether you enjoy those things. Um, the engagement, dedication, and generosity of mentors and sponsors along the way. I couldn't have done it without people that made these things available. And then a little bit of luck, to be honest. Um, I've had a long sort of uh, journey. Uh, for those of you who know me well, uh, I started my career at the University of Pennsylvania at Children's Hospital Philadelphia and got involved in simulation-based education there and got an opportunity to run the fellowship really, really early in my career under the mentorship of Dr. Alan Schwartz. And it was through those experiences, if I had said no to, I would never have learned that I enjoyed teaching. Uh, and I actually went back and got another degree, which I never thought I would do. So I got my master's in medical education at Penn while I was a, a young faculty at CHOP. Mm -hmm. And it was through that that I learned that I enjoyed research in education and that I enjoyed curriculum development. And I enjoyed learning about how to debrief and give feedback to my trainees. And it, were, it was all those experiences that really led me. Unfortunately, life happens, and you have to follow where your family needs to go. And so I left CHOP five years later, five years into my career and landed in Dallas. And I think it was actually all of those things that made it possible for me to be given the opportunity by my chair, who's very supportive of education in our institution. Um, probably one of the most supportive chairs I have heard. Uh, and so he said, you know, I can't have you run a residency or fellowship, but why don't you help revamp the medical student curriculum? And so I did that with gusto. I get, had an opportunity again. I knew nothing about it, but I sort of took it on. And it gave me the opportunity to sit at institutional tables where people that had institutional leadership and national roles, just like mine now, got to know me. And so the little bit of luck was that I had a sponsor in that little community of leaders at UT Southwestern who said, you'd be a great nominee for the RC. And that's how it happened. Um, you just got to say yes. Maybe it's yes, but, but you have to say yes to these opportunities. That's great, Aditi. Thank you. And would you say, you know, a lot of times I tell junior faculty and, and residents who are getting ready to be faculty that it's kind of important to say yes a lot early on mm -hmm. and then to learn to say no later on. And, I, you know, I think we hear a lot about learning to say no, which is really important, especially when we talk about wellness. You can't say yes to everything, and that's true. But I think early on, if you try to say yes to a fair number of things, it opens up opportunities later on, which is what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, and I, you know what, admittedly, I didn't know what I wanted to do in academic medicine when I started, and I had sort of told my mentor at the time, I'm going to say yes to, I want to do one of everything until I sort of settle into a niche. And so when you join a department or you join an organization where those opportunities are available, you kind of luck out. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Maybe folks in the audience who are thinking, hey, I'd like to be on the RC. How exactly does one get on the RC? That's a good question. Um, there are three nominating bodies for the RCs, and I, and I believe this is the case for most specialties, uh, but for our specialty specifically, the ASA actually has three, I believe it's three, nominate, three seats where they nominate three individuals. Uh, the ABA, so the board, and then the AMA. And I believe the AMA has seats on every RC. And so every six years, uh, or every two years, they get to, you, you rotate off, uh, they get to nominate two or three new individuals. So at any one time, there's somewhere between 10 and 12 individuals, including a public member, a resident member, um, and, uh, and the board ex officio that helps us negotiate some of the board discussions. So you get nominated by one of these three societies, and you submit an application, you talk about all the things that you'd want to do if you sat on the RC and why you feel compelled to do so. 
And then the RC members vote. Um, and they decide whether you, amongst the other nominees, are qualified. And, and I have to say, you know, we sort of think of the ACGME as this scary building that makes these big rules that we all have to follow. But I've learned that the people on these committees, and I'm not just saying it because I sit on it, are really kind, hardworking. They really want to do the right thing. Um, and so much so that I am the youngest member of the RC. Uh, I think my children are the same age as many of the grandchildren uh, of the members on the RC. And so when I started, admittedly had major imposter syndrome. It, it still exists, uh, I think, in, in our stage of our careers. And But I said, if I'm going to make the most of this, I just have to go and learn and listen and speak up and ask questions. And that's exactly what I did. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Let's last question about the the RC. Who sits on it? I actually learned recently it isn't all program directors. No. So I knew there's a resident member and a public member, and I'm sure there are some program directors like you, but there are also chairs, chairs, yeah. vice chairs. Um, you can actually go to the ACGME website and look up the anesthesiology RC and see all of the names of the individuals on the list. Um, yeah, we have a really great makeup. Uh, if you want specific names, I can name them. It's okay, but, uh, we'll look we them have up. Chairman, we have vice chairs of education, um, directors of simulation, uh, program directors, and a, a public member as well. Great. Well, I won't make you tell us what the internal debates are there. I, I imagine that there are some things between, especially chairs and program directors, that may have different points of view on some stuff, but really interesting. And actually, we have, of course, a chair and a program director here today. <laughs> But we won't reenact that. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. That's really interesting stuff. The last thing I want to ask you, and then we're going to turn to Dr. Bacon, is your, your interest both, I know, research-wise and clinically in pediatric burn anesthesia. And I'm particularly interested because it strikes me, I, I certainly don't do pediatrics or burns, but it strikes me as probably an incredibly challenging both from a practice but also an emotional uh, standpoint. So what advice do you have for folks who may be doing this kind of anesthesia, maybe residents who rotate through to kind of maintain their own emotional well-being while taking care of what probably is one of the most difficult populations to, to kind of separate yourself from, especially if you have kids and you're seeing badly burned kids. I imagine that's really tough. Yeah, my children know we don't have candles in our house. We don't have uh, a lot of things in our house because of the injuries we've seen. But, you know, it's hard. I think a good doctor feels compassion for their patients and these children are super vulnerable. Many of them come with families who hurt them. And so sometimes I know them better than anybody else, uh, in their, you know, in their lives, which is really sad. So it wears on you. I think, um, you have to decide what is your outlet to feel well when you leave the hospital. And for me, it is being with my parent, my children and my husband and my family. And I think, um, it, you know, you just have to find that community that keeps you healthy and happy. And we take care of a lot of sick patients and a lot of not just pediatric burn, but, you know, the cancer patients we take care of and the traumas that happen because people are trying to do the right thing and they happen to have a bad, bad luck that day. So I don't know that it's unique to PD burns. It is an emotionally exhausting uh, practice because you get to know the kids actually quite well. They come back to see you, which is kind of nice. You get to watch them get better most of the time and grow. But I think it's important to have those activities outside of work. And, and I, there's days where I, I say, I'm not going to do any work today. I'm just going to be well. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. And I, we'll end with this. What do you do for to stay well? Other than spend time with your kids, what do you do when you're not working and you decide, I'm, today's for me? So I play tennis. Uh, my, my boys and I play, play tennis together. 
and we go biking a, a fair bit. Uh, and fortunately in Dallas, uh, after work, usually, or especially this time of year, it's starting to cool off. I bet. Mm-hmm. It's probably beautiful. Well, thank you, Aditi. A pleasure to chat, and we'll let the audience ask questions in a little bit. Sure. Um, all right, Dr. Bacon. So yes, sir. let's start with the same question for you that I started with Dr. Ambarticar. What, how'd you get, and, and, and we, you know, you could, I'm sure, talk for quite a long time because you've done so many amazing <laughs> things, but if we just think about your kind of interest in the history of anesthesiology, how did that develop, and when did it develop, and, and kind of how did you build on it over the course of your career? Well, <clears throat> um, before I, I really start, um, I'll tell you a little funny story. Please. I uh, have an undergraduate degree in history, so it goes way, way back. And we had a really wonderful uh, professor, uh, Orville Murphy, um, and today is his 90-something birthday. He was a submariner in World War II, and he came in one day, and he was very frustrated. And Orville was one of the most calm, quiet guys you've ever met. And he's, you know, Dr. Murphy, what's the problem? He goes, oh, I just came out of a faculty meeting. You know, these damn history professors, they can stand up and talk for 45 minutes whether they have anything to say or not. <laughs> so <clears throat> be careful when you ask me questions. Fair enough. We don't have 45 minutes, but we are interested to hear what you have to say. Um, the interest in history, very, um, very quickly and very succinctly, um, history has always been something I've been very interested in. I did my undergraduate work at the State University of New York at Buffalo. I have a BA in history and a BS in medicinal chemistry. Um, I then uh, went to medical school, and I struggled in my first year academically. And uh, our <clears throat> one of our vice presidents was a guy by the name of Dan Fox, and he held a history session starting in second year where he would provide lunch, we brown bagged our, we provide um, drinks for our lunch, we brown bagged it, and we read a chapter in a book or something in it and started analyzing. And that's where the history of medicine really got in. My real, my outside interest is more of what you heard this morning. I've read Doran, a lot of what Doris Kearns Goodwin has written. My real interest is in Germany, 18, um, 1875 to 1945, and how the unification of the German states destabilizes Europe. Very, very boring. Good stuff to read when you can't get to sleep at night, but that's what interests me. Fair enough. But what about the history of anesthesiology? Well, in um, my senior year of medical school, there was a contest by the American Association of the History of Medicine called the Osler Prize, and it's for the best undergraduate essay. So I competed in that. I did not win, but I started learning about anesthesia. And in that uh, time, I was able to go to the Wood Library Museum in, uh, at that point it was in Park Ridge, it's now in Schaumburg, Illinois, and I met the most wonderful person, Patrick Sim. And Patrick was a librarian, and I started reading the minutes you can, uh, of the original Long Island Society that started in 1905, and all the way through to, you know, the uh, current American Society. And <clears throat> when you're touching paper that people you have read about have touched, it is an incredible sensation. Now, it's interesting because I did the same thing you did. I went, graduated, did my residency. I took a job at Roswell Park Cancer Institute under, uh, and Mark Lima was our chair. Mark is a past president of ASA. And Mark wanted each one of us to do something academic. Well, I watched my colleagues struggle with the IRB, and I said, ain't doing that. And so I said, look, I want to do history. And, he's, and Mark was really, really good about it. He said, yeah, that sounds great. So I decided I needed training, so I went back and got my master's um, at the same time I had two young kids and a third born during the five years it took me to do the master's um, in history. 
And from then, I just started, you know, publishing and working, you know, finding things to write. One of the cool things about doing the master's was I took a writing course with Dr. Murphy, and we would have to produce a manuscript every three weeks, and we, with two other colleagues, and we would criticize each other's writing, and then you'd bring another draft back and so forth, and about uh, three publications came out of that. My, the colleague I was working with was history of uh, obstetrics and gynecology, so I know a little bit more about that field. Um, and then um, I, uh, my clinical work, I left uh, the Roswell Park Cancer Institute, went on to uh, be the first anesthesia service chief at the VA in Buffalo. And then from there, Mark uh, Warner uh, recruited me to Mayo Clinic. And Mayo was a phenomenal place because Mark wanted me to do history and history at Mayo and history of anesthesiology. And they have this phenomenal um, uh, archive of John Lundy's papers. And John Lundy in the 30s wrote with everybody else. And, you know, again, you're touching papers that somebody else has touched. Um, and what most people don't understand is the, that in history you try to answer a question. It's like science. There's a hypothesis. And the question I've been trying to answer for almost 30 years now is something that a surgeon proposed that there was no organized anesthesia prior to the Second World War. And actually, all of the infrastructure that we currently enjoy comes from prior to the Second World War. I can actually explain to you why, the triple, why there are three committees, why that is the way it is, because it evolved in the late 30s. Um, and our board was uh, first incorporated, actually, as a sub-board of surgery in 1938. So... How did it get there? That, and then I keep finding all these fascinating things. Um, Maurice, the talk I'm going to give tomorrow morning, I was doing some research, and we found somebody at the Mayo Clinic that the Mayo Clinic is, is an alum in anesthesia that the Mayo Clinic people didn't know about. And, and it happens to be a woman. And <clears throat> Lundy had written a letter that we find it better that if the, if the doctors are male and the nurses are female, everything works a lot better. <laughs> Which I find hilarious, mind you, but so. But then, in <clears throat> this person was one of his favorites, and he really enjoyed teaching her. So it's 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 fascinating, and that's what keeps me going. Yeah, it seems like you know, with history, you keep discovering new things, and it keeps you hooked if you're if you're interested in it. So you have not only been interested, but as you said, you have found a way to make this a scholarly pursuit, and and actually built an academic career around it. Is there any tips you'd give? Because I think there, you know, we always have residents, and I'm, I'm sure Aditi does too, who want to do academics, but they don't really want to do, as you said, they don't want to do basic science research. They don't want to even do clinical research. So they need to find some academic focus. If they're interested in something, you know, more in the humanities, something like history, what would you recommend? Did, did you, would you point them in the direction of doing a master's in, in that area, or what, what would you recommend? Well, I, I actually, I think you pointed it out so beautifully. You've got to find what you're passionate about. Um, you know, there's that old saying, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it, you know, wanting to do something. I have a lot of people, because I'm the chair, they want to come and do their, their, their project, their intellectual project with me. And I tell them, if you don't love history, please don't do it with me, because it will be painful for you and painful for me. But if you love it, I am happy to do whatever it takes. I have good friends that are heavily into ethics, and I think we need more of that. We need people who, are, who actually, as you stand there and you say, you know, I take care of these children that are you know, terribly injured, and sometimes it's the parents that have injured them on purpose, and how do I deal with this, and what is the ethics around that, and how do I deal with the parents? You have a passion for that, and if you were into ethics, that's what you would be doing. And 
you, 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 that's what you, you need to find. When I started, it was very hard to get published in the peer-reviewed literature, and you know we've created a journal now that's indexed in the peer-reviewed literature. I'd like to say I did it, but it isn't true. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know we, we we worked through, and we worked with a lot of people who were very influential, who said, "Yeah, this sounds like a good idea." And what you want to do is you want don't give up. I was told many times, "You'll never ever make professor if your research interest is history." And I stand before you today probably the only tenured professor whose research is, is, is history, but it can be done. And it's about persistence and it's about doing your passion. Yeah, well, thank you. That's great. And congratulations on having forged that path. I think it'll open that up for other people who are interested. Let's talk about World War II anesthesia. So I, I'm not going to steal your thunder for tomorrow. Oh, I know no. you're giving a whole talk on it, but maybe tell us one or two things you find really fascinating about the anesthesia that happened during World War II. Well, a couple of things that are fascinating about it is, first of all, there's something called the 90-day wonders. And what happened was, at the onset of the war, there was, it was known that there would be a need for anesthesia services. And so what they did was they took young physicians that were drafted, and they, gave, they assigned them to specialties. Um, and anesthesia was one of them. They spent 90 days, three months, at, a, at several places, Bellevue in New York, um, University of Wisconsin in Madison, um, Mayo Clinic and some, uh, uh, Harvard at uh, Mass General. And what they did was they learned the principles of anesthesia in 90 days and then were shipped out. It was wildly successful. Why did it work? Because they were taking care of health, by and large, healthy, fit, young men who were seriously wounded which is a very different occupation than what I do every day with, you know, 70-year-old people who have concomitant disease. Um, the other thing is they taught them regional anesthesia, and they taught them regional anesthesia because they could have a corpsman watching the vital signs of the patient at the same time that they were running two or three or four rooms. And one of the more fascinating things was um, one of the guys that I won't be talking about tomorrow, Sam Lieberman, who was from Buffalo, whom I met, uh, he discovered that you could do continuous spinal anesthesia. And he, he related a story to me about a very serious abdominal wound where the guy was wiggling his toes, talking to the surgeon while they were resecting his spleen. And the, the point of all of that was, Sam, by thinking about it, by being an anesthesiologist and by taking care of that in fluid management, he dropped the theater, of, he dropped in his hospital the mortality from serious interabdominal wounds from 60% to 12 Wow. So it changed. And what, the other thing that was interesting is we were able to trace at Mayo, and subsequently they've been able to trace it at the University of Wisconsin, the folks that did the 90-day course, about 40% of them wound up being a, be a certified anesthesiologist. And it was this exposure by, to the specialty and exposure of surgeons to what an anesthesiologist could do that radically changed our specialty in the, you know, in, in the latter half of the 20th century. Well, that's fascinating. I want to come back to what you said, because what a striking statistic from 60% to 12. And this was what, what was it that made he the did spinals? He did them under regional anesthesia as opposed to putting everybody under general. They, he was in the South Pacific. Ether is hot. It's muggy. It's hard to get the things to vaporize. And so he was looking for a better way to do things. And so the, was it that general anesthesia carried with it such a high mortality rate back then? And no, so no. It's just that, uh, that wound, that place, that time. It worked. It worked. I mean, it's like in your hospital, I'm sure in my hospital, there are things that work for the way we do things and with our equipment that may not work at your place or your place. Yeah. 
you know, and it's just kind of who you have, what talents you have. But uh, it was quite fascinating. It is fascinating. And what what were they using? I mean, was a spinal back then similar to what a spinal is now? Was it bupivacaine? Oh, no, 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 no. It was Novocaine. Okay. (laughs) And they were using it continuously. Yeah. There's something called a lemon needle. Now, the lemon needle, it doesn't, no, it doesn't look like a lemon. I've, it's usually the first thing everybody thinks of. It's an, it, it has a malleable center. And what you can do is it's actually a solid, you know, looks like a regular needle. It's got a, a trocar in it and you, a stylet in it. You put it in till you get C, you pull the stylet out, you get CSF, and then you can bend it 90 degrees and it lumen does not crimp. It does not obstruct. And so then you can attach a piece of tubing to it, run it up somebody's back. You got to remember, there's no plastics. You also have to remember IV fluid therapy during World War II is steel needles in people's veins. Plastic IV, the, the plastic IV that we're used to is a 19, mid-1950s invention, hmm. which is another fascinating story. It was invented on somebody's stove. <laughs> wow. So they were using, in, your, in the vein, metal needles, but this lemon needle. This lemon needle you put in, you could then bend it. They had a special mattress that had a, it had a, a channel in it that you put the tubing in, and then you had the syringe up at your head. Similar to what we would do with a continuous epidural today or a continuous spinal today, the needle being replaced by a piece of plastic tubing. And I assume they didn't have infusion pumps. Oh, gosh. So this was just manual. Well, this was, yeah, you know, I was starting to feel something. Yeah, oh, yeah, we'll top you up. Okay. And it worked. <laughs> it and worked. It, and it improved mortality. Amazing. So, all right, World War II anesthesia. If you had to say a couple things that when you look back and you think about how it was done, how, what can we learn? How can we improve our practice from either what was done in World War II or just the history that you've studied of anesthesiology? What do you look back and think we need to learn from this, or maybe we already have, that we could really shape our practice today? Well, a couple of things. First and foremost, we, we've actually kind of seen it over the last 18 months. We have gone and pivoted from an unexpected problem, and <clears throat> our specialty has walked, away, has walked away from being in the OR and walked up into critical ICUs taking care of people that are dying and pretty much did a fairly decent job of saving a lot of lives that would have gone another way. Um, it's our ability to pivot, to change, to think, to see systems. And that's what they were seeing in World War II. They saw that if the anesthesiologists took a pre-op assessment area and did fluid therapy and resuscitated prior to the OR, mortality dropped. Today, what are we talking about? We're talking about optimization, talking about the perioperative physician. It's nothing new. It's been going on forever. It's just that there's never been enough of us to really make it happen on the scale in which it needs to happen. You know, I look at uh, the acute pain service is another thing because that's something new, quote-unquote. But no, people are always worried about pain. It's just the techniques have changed as we've gotten better drugs and better techniques. Um, I think that's one of the things. The other things is that, you know, it, it is the exposure. In my medical school, there is no mandatory anesthesia rotation. As in, I would imagine, a lot of the medical schools. And so uh, it's, I always liken us to, re, uh, to re, um, radiation oncology. How do you know you have any interest in radiation oncology? Because unless you know a radiation oncologist, you never get exposed. Unless you really know or have heard about anesthesia, until you hit surgery, you, never, you, you, you really have no idea what we do. 
And then when you hit surgery, you got those guys screaming at you. Come on, come on, hold the, retract more, hold the stick, do this, do that. Oh, go back on the floor and go draw some blood, whatever. Instead of being with us and, uh, you know, and they, a lot of, a lot of my medical students tell, tell me that, yeah, it was when you guys, you're nice, you talk to us, you don't abuse us, you want us to learn something. That's what brought us into the specialty. Fantastic. Let me ask you this. When you look back, it seems like we've made such strides. Uh, you think about anesthesia is not that old, right? I mean, 1846. And, and till now, we went from nothing to the incredible anesthesia we have now. 175th anniversary, by the way. There you go, 175 years. Does it give you hope? Do you think we, we learned so much and, and yet there's so much more left to learn and we're going to make similar strides? Or do you think that we're not going to see the same kind of strides forward in the next 175 years that we saw in the last? Well, two, two questions, two things, two comments. First question is, or first comment is, do we know how general anesthesia works on the brain? And the answer is, we know just about as much today as they did when Morton passed gas in 1846. There, and the joke always was when I was a resident and as a junior faculty member, Doug, if you figure out how anesthesia works, you'll win the Nobel Prize. I haven't won the Nobel Prize yet. Neither has anybody else. Still got time. Second thing is... How many times do medical students or junior or residents come to you and say, do you think, what's the viability of the specialty? Um, I have heard that we're going to be replaced by nurses uh, for about 35 years now. Uh, nobody is, no, I don't know anybody that wants to sit in my chair, uh, and I don't think that um, you all will ever be replaced. And while I think that AI may help us going forward, and there's a whole, there's another whole area to explore where I think things may be helpful to us. I don't think the, at the end of the day, the intuition, the experience and the ability to rescue will ever disappear. And that's what we do best. Yeah. Thank you. And you know, what I love about history is the perspective it gives you. Doris Kearns Goodwin said this morning that she looks back and she studied so much history and she sees that. You know, we've been at these kind of terrible seeming points before where it seemed like there was just never going to be a way forward and we were never going to find a way to get along. And yet, of course, we made it through those. And so maybe it gives us some amount of hope to put our current dilemma in perspective <laughs> and think maybe we will get through this, too. And it seems like you're saying the same thing, you know, that, that it may feel like there's a crisis now that our, our specialty has no future. And yet this is not new. It's been said, and yet here we are still working. When the board was formed, there was essentially 10 nurses for every anesthesiologist. That has changed. And a lot of it changes with the fact that if you're in, if you show up and do your job right, people understand the value you bring to the, to the table. And in my particular place, we have actually taken over scheduling of, out of OR locations because the people just... They, they, they haven't figured it out yet, and we have, and we figured out flow and how you can use two rooms to maximize instead of the standard flipping. My, my prime example is our TEE, our, uh, TEE practice, was they would bring the patient in, have them change out of their street clothes, do all the paperwork, and this is all in the procedure room, do the procedure, recover them in the procedure room, do all the, uh, the discharge paperwork and have them change in the street clothes and leave. They could do four a day. We said, no, 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 no. You've got this beautiful pre-op and post-op assessment area. Just do it like we do it in the OR, right? Pre, boom, post, boom. We got the, uh, we got the entire list of six done by noon that morning, and we had to wait an hour for one of the patients to come down from the floor. <laughs>
All right, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So let me ask you finally this. When you think about your journey to being a chair, and again, there may be people in the audience who think, you know, I'd like to be a chair of a department one day. You may or may not think that's a good idea. But well, I think it's a great idea. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. What advice would you give? What If people, uh, you know, D- Dr. Ambarticar gave us thoughts on kind of going down the path of becoming a program director and being in these leadership roles. How about you? For being a chair, what would you recommend people do, whether it's young faculty, whether it's residents thinking about being in in academic medicine? How should they go about preparing themselves for a job like yours? Um, I don't think you can ever completely prepare yourself for the job like mine because uh, you you never quite know uh, what's going to happen next. The most important thing is to first and foremost develop a core, strong academic research portfolio. People do not really want you to be chairs uh, if you haven't. The second thing is to start to understand the business of anesthesia. And I don't mean, I mean, you know, like, how do you get, how do you make money? How do you bill appropriately? What are the rules around all of that? Because that is things you'll be asked about the bottom line all the time. And you need to know, for example, our residents actually, with all the things they do outside the OR, actually a cost-effective uh, replacement for CRNAs. And that is also very dependent on where you are and how much time you spend outside the OR and how you have your program set up. Um, but most importantly, you want to be a good citizen, both of the department and of the medical center. You want to be somebody that is looked at as a positive and as a leader. And that means that it, like, if you're given the schedule to do who takes the extra call? The guy that the, or the, or the gal that does the schedule, not jumping it on somebody else. You try and have be, you try to be the person that, you know, when there's a problem, they call you, you come into the room and people say, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad he or she is here. I am, you know, cause I've had people come in the room that I said, oh God, please leave. <laughs> you're more, you're, you're more of a problem than the patient. Um, <laughs> 
you don't want to be that person. You want to be the person that everybody calls on. And you want to be, you also want to be the person that people can come and, and kind of tell things that are bothering them and listen without being judgmental. And when you do those sorts of things, you will then get the administrative roles and you'll move up in both the medical center and in the department. And somewhat of uh, becoming a chair is also a little bit of a, the opportunity at the time, at the place. And the reason I'm in Jackson, Mississippi, I mean, when I asked, said to my wife, I said, well, the chair is open in, uh, in Mississippi. And she goes, oh, hell no. <laughs> Uh, been there almost eight years now. Uh, but what it was, I said, honey, just take a look. And we saw in Jackson a lot of potential. And um, I've really been very happy there. It's been a great learning experience. We are an incredibly low-resource environment. And I, the residents who come out of our program, I, I always joke, if I gave them a beeper and a wire, they could have an infusion pump in 20 minutes. Um, but... That's, you know, you, you, that's kind of how you, 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 you look for the opportunity. You look at, you, you know, it's like when you look at a house and the wall is this ugly pink. Well, the paint isn't the problem. Is the structure sound. If the structure's there, you can fix the paint. And that's, you know, you, you, you've got to be willing to, to put in the effort to make it happen. Well, that's great advice. Thank you. And, Doug, when, I can't imagine you have a lot of free time as a chair, but when you do, if you do ever carve out time for yourself, what do you do? How do you spend the time? How do I spend my free time? Um... Well, uh, I, I, always, I like to tinker. I like to repair things. Uh, my wife makes me watch hoarders, hoarders, and I finally threw out the Christmas string light from 1985 that I've been going to fix. Um, <laughs> I see there are a few people in the audience that can relate to this. Um, I, I like to do some woodworking. Um, I happen to live on a fairly small lake, um, and so when some days I walk out the back door and I take my fishing pole, and really the bass don't care what happened that day. And I would tell everybody to have a dog because it does two things for you. One, you have to walk them so you get some exercise, which is important. And two, nobody will love you like a dog. I have a rough collie named Lori. She is, uh, and by the way, collies are man's ultimate, a uh, male man's ultimate dog. Now, <clears throat> this is a very sexist comment, and it's not politically correct. I warn you, so if you are offended, I apologize in advance. But if you have a blonde hair on your, ja on your coat and your wife happens to be a brunette, she goes, honey, where did you get that hair? Oh, the dog jumped up me because my dog has blonde hair, white hair, black hair <laughs> and my dog Lori still thinks she's a puppy and still thinks she can at 70 pounds can sit in my lap and she will come up and after she gives me her, her, her kiss she'll put her chest, her head on my chest and listen to my heart and there is nothing that fixes your day than that, that feeling when I'm sitting on the couch that's great. Thank you for sharing that, Doug. All right, let's do random recommendations, and then we're going to go to the audience for questions. So, uh, Aditi, would you like to start? What would you recommend that the audience check out? So, I know we talked about a book earlier, but I'm actually going to recommend something a little bit. Okay, last-minute switch, that's last fine. Last-minute switch. Um, I have gotten very interested in Brene Brown lately. I think this idea of leadership, daring leadership, vulnerability, Learning how to be a good leader, it's important for all of us as anesthesiologists. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have, you don't have to run a program or a big department. And I really like what she teaches um, about authenticity, vulnerability, 
you know, shame and how to sort of deal with that in your daily life and your career. So she podcasts. Um, and say her name again. So Renee Brown. She's a psychology researcher out of UT Houston. And she's got several books. Actually, there's one on parenting, which I have read <laughs> a few times. All right. Uh, Take all the advice I can get. For sure. Just remember, kids don't come with a manual. <laughs> That's true, especially middle school age children. Oh, you have my deepest sympathies. <laughs> um, but she's just a lovely individual to learn from. Um, and I have a girl crush on her. Very cool. All right. Well, people can check out. And it's her first name is Renee? Brene. Brene. R-E-N-E Brown. All right, B R E N A E. N E. Brene. B R E N E. B R E N E. This is why I do it, because I'm going to get it wrong if I don't. All right, B R E N E. Brene Brown. People can check that out. All right, Doug, what do you recommend that people check out? Oh, I'm torn. Because what I really want you to check out is not anything that you can go to the library and get or get online. <clears throat> It has become more and more apparent to me the older I have gotten, and I know I look incredibly young, but, you know, um, that you really need to spend time with your family. At the end of the day, when you fall off the roof shoveling snow and you've broken your wrists and they're both like this and you can't even click the remote, this happened to a patient of mine, who's going to be there for you? And who's going to be there for you at the end of the day? And I've spent a lot of my time building my career, and I have a little bit of regret about some of the things that I have um, have done and not spent time with the boys like I wanted to. My four sons are all out of college and out of the house, and so I have a you know I have a ten year old daughter, um, and she is a challenge because girls are raising girls is very different than raising boys, and raising boys that are hockey players is very different to begin with, um, but. You know, my wife and I have, my wife has taken on a new job and she's been incredibly busy and we have found out that somebody was stalking my daughter on um, one of the internet, Mm. the things that she uses on her iPad that's usually just for kids. And it made me stop and pivot and say, what's really important? And I am 62 and a half. I'm looking towards retirement. My part of my career, my, the, the, the goal climbing is over. And I'm trying to think about, okay, what is really important? And I wish I'd thought about that 20 years ago. So I wish I could tell you a a specific thing to check out, you know, a how-to book. It isn't there, but you got to find it inside yourself. And that is the most important thing. And I think the most important thing as a physician is to know yourself. We all go through what you go through with the pediatrics. I was thinking about it. I have a son who's a police officer. And he has PTSD over some of the things he sees on a daily basis. And I think back, and, you know, there, there are cases that still haunt me, you know, and we just don't think about those sorts of things. And we don't think about it, and, you know, and, and you know, as, as corny as it sounds, I should be telling my wife that I love her a lot more. She packed a lunch for me for the plane. And I opened the napkin, and there's this Post-it note, you know. That, I think, is what, you know, if I can give one piece of advice to most of you, and most of you in the audience are a lot younger than I am, that would be my piece of advice to you. Be kind to the people around you. You have that choice, even when they're nasty to you. Well, thank you, Doug. That's a wonderful recommendation and totally fine that it's not anything specific. I think it's a wonderful one, and I hope we all take it to heart. I'm going to make a local recommendation. So I'm not from San Diego, and I haven't been here in decades, but... I have discovered over the past two days a wonderful pokey place. So if you are hungry, 
and you want to get out from this little bubble. It's like a 10-minute walk. It's called Poke Vida, V-I-D-A. It is on 10th between J and India. It is this little, I don't want to say hole in the wall because it's not, I mean, it's very nice inside, but they're relatively new. They have very highly rated, but not a lot of ratings on Yelp because they're new. But they are delightful. The staff there is fantastic. I met the owner today. He happened to be there. He was the nicest guy. And the food, it is fresh. It's delicious. And I highly, highly recommend it. I'm not getting paid for this. I paid for my pokey. So uh, it's, I'm, this is totally out of, the, out of the fact that I loved it. So check it out. Walk over there for dinner, for lunch tomorrow. Uh, and they also have the partnered, actually, with another company that does cold-brewed nitro coffee and they have uh some incredible flavors they have an orchata flavor they have a regular just a, a black but it's if you haven't had nitro cold brewed coffee it is you wouldn't believe it's coffee it is the smoothest most delicious thing in the world so if you drink coffee you can get it over there too it's really really delicious so go check that out poke vita all right let's open it up to audience questions the mic is live i hope and if anyone's got one come on up while you're coming up, and thank you, I want to do. I want to give a shout out to Ryan Okonski, who is here somewhere. Ryan, where are you? Raise your hand. There he is. Ryan is our social media manager. You may recognize his name. I shout him out at the end of every episode. But since he's here live, I wanted to give a big thank you. If you are following us on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, he's the one behind the scenes putting out the fantastic questions every week. Really doing an amazing job. So, Ryan, thank you, and thanks for being here. All right. Jacob. Hi guys, my name is Jake. I'm a fourth year medical student. I, I just want to say it's an, it's an honor to see you guys in person. And um, I'm a huge fan of Jed's work and the, uh, the Akrad podcast. So thanks so much for, for making that happen. Thanks, Jake. Um, so my question is for Dr. Bacon. Um, you've kind of expressed some, some regrets about um, what I'm getting at is um, a non-optimal work-life balance in the past. And there's um, obviously a lot of medical students going into residency uh, here at this program. And I think that's on that's part of the forefront of what we're thinking about right now. And uh, there has been a recent shift towards um, more optimal work-life balance and residency. Do you think that we're doing enough now or still not? Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, remember I trained before hours regulation. In fact, in New York State, the uh, Bell Commission came in July 1st, 1989, the reason I remember that date is I graduated June 30th, 1989. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, my, my worst call in the ICU was I started at 5 a.m. with rounds, did 24 hours, and uh, was relieved at 11 p.m. the next day. Wow. Uh, and, you know, so I also come from, as a boomer, I come from the generation that you work until the work is done. And, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I do believe we are doing a lot better. There are our, hours regulations. We talk about it. I think that that is the thing that we don't do as well as I would like to see us do, and that's to talk about the pressures, the issues. Raising children during residency is stressful. Um, you know, Having a spouse in the profession is stressful. Having a spouse not in the in the in the uh, in medicine is difficult because they have no understanding about what you're doing. Yes. And why, when the pa you know when the patient was bleeding, you couldn't just you know turn it over to somebody else. You felt this ownership, and you needed to do it. 
So, I mean, I think those are the issues we need to get more out in our residency. Um, you know, I never really understood childcare issues when I was um, in the earlier part of my career because my ex-wife stayed at home. My current wife is an OBGYN who works crazier hours than I do. And so, you know, I understand, oh, you know, the baby's sick. You can't take it to daycare. What are we going to do? Who, you know, those sorts of things. And, and I think that it, there's a lot of knowledge that we just don't share because it's kind of a taboo subject. And I would love to see us expand that more. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as a program director. Oh, oh you did it again. Did it again. There you go. There you go. We're back. Um, it's a really important conversation we're having at the national level. Um, several of these guidelines that have come down from the ACGME are instituted followed, you know, pretty closely by programs. But I think we have to remember that, well, work, first of all, it's work-life harmony, I think is a better phrase. And sometimes it's a cacophony, as I <laughs> to my husband. But work-life balance and harmony and, and wellness isn't that you're not working hard. It's that you're working hard and you're feeling like your work is meaningful and you're feeling that you're, you're supported. So I think the work hour requirements are important, but it's not the only thing. You have to go and be in a place, and recruitment season is upon us. You have to find a program that supports you, in which you know you're going to thrive, and that's going to be different from everybody else. Okay. Um, so wellness is a really interesting concept, and I think we have to sort of pivot how we approach that. It's not about how much you're working. It's how you're working. And I think that's my feeling about wellness. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly well said, Aditi. I, I would say that, you know, I tell all our applicants that we, we work really hard, as I know you do too, on making sure that we support our residents, that we pay attention to wellness. But that residency is still hard, right? I mean, it may well be that we should be completely restructuring it and have it be less hours, but, but we can't do that overnight. And so for right now, residency is what it is. And, and anywhere you go... Any program in the country, you're going to work about the same number of hours. So you're going to work the hours. So the question for wellness is not, is it a few hours less or a few hours more? It's, am I supported while I'm working those hours? Do I feel like someone's listening when I have something going on? Are there people who are mentoring me and supporting me along the way? Because it's hard. Residency is hard. And anybody who says it's not is not being honest with you. So yeah. you got to be supported while you do hard things. And my residents will know, I, I quote Brene Brown all the time, if, we're not, if it's not hard... We're not learning, right? So if you if you come to residency expecting to know all the answers, <laughs> expecting to it to be easy, then you're in the wrong you're in the wrong place. Yeah, Thir thirty two years as, as an attending, and I'm still trying to figure out what the right answer is. Yeah. You know, but you know, I, I I would loved your comment because hours are easy to measure. It's like what in, it's like in physiology. What do you really want to know? You want to know blood flow to an organ. You really don't care what the pressure is if the flow is adequate. But you can't measure flow, so you measure the surrogate, which is pressure. We can't measure all of the things you just mentioned easily or adequately, at least in my opinion. But we can measure how long you work. And <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, I really believe that the latter is mo much more important than measuring time. Because then we become nothing more than shift workers. Mm -hmm. And we, a long time ago when I was ASA newsletter editor, I wrote an editorial about that. 
And my, it, my, my wife will tell you, it drives me crazy when somebody says, well, my shift's over. No, your clinical responsibilities are done. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. And thanks, Jake. Great question. Thank Great you. question. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Erica. I'm a CA1 at Stanford. Thank you so much for an amazing uh, ACRAC podcast. Thanks, Erica. Uh, this is kind of an extension, actually, of the previous question. But um, in considering a career in academic medicine, I've been told often that, especially as an early career attending, it's you're taking extra time that isn't you know built in. You're basically taking your free time to take on a lot of extra responsibilities, which you had kind of alluded to, Dr. Mm-hmm. Bredekar. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there's a way that academic medicine could be restructured to kind of give more support towards those early career faculty? Because I think that that tends to drive a lot of people away from academics and into private practice. And it, I think it takes a lot of like brilliant minds away from what, what could be, yeah, a great career. I think it's a great question, Erica. I'm interested in what both of you think. Maybe we'll start with you, Doug, since you have you are in charge of many young faculty. What do you do to support them, and what do you wish you could do maybe that, that you don't do? Well, the, the, it, as unfortunate as it is, it boils down to money um, a lot of times. And also, if I'm going to invest you know, a non-clinical day, which is the time that you get to do these sorts of things, is an investment in the department. I need to know, I need to have some indication that you to give you that time that you are going to use it productively. I have been in departments where everybody got a non-clinical day and the people that really weren't interested in trying to do anything were getting their hair cut and going out and doing which caused a lot of resentment. The and the people that were putting in R01s and busting their butt, you know, they they were there at five in the morning and were going home at midnight on their non-clinical day and they were viewed as not working because they weren't in the OR. So if to for junior faculty beginning, I want to see what are you interested in, how committed are you to that, and I don't mean like you know every Saturday and Sunday you're you're not you're working doing that, but you know yeah occasionally on a, on an evening you're putting in some time doing that. You're making sure you if you're in the residency you're showing up at things like um, well we have for example our fourth years when they finish their rotation they do a. They, we have a, a, a Zoom meeting with them doing a presentation, a 15-minute presentation. Are you, you know, you're, you're not one of the faculty mentoring, but you just show up to listen. Are you interested? Are you engaged? And then I'm much more willing, and then I'm also going to make sure that you have a mentor and that we're following a, uh, a uh, timeline and a progression that we want to see certain milestones hit so that I know that the investment that I'm making is going to pay dividends. I also know that I'm going to invest in 10 people, and if I get one out of them that is a superstar, I have succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. You know, you've got to give everybody a chance, and, but the, to get the chance, you have to show me you're interested. You have to show me some commitment. Thanks, Doug. Aditi, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I've always been a part of departments where non-clinical time is earned. It's not an entitlement. And I think there's a little bit of activation energy that goes into demonstrating that. Um, and so while I understand, and I think it goes into the sort of the wellness and the the balance piece, I think there is some commitment that you have to show. And my residents, I do the same thing for when they want a research month. You have to demonstrate to me that you're going to use that month. Show me a proposal. Show me that you're going to work sometimes on your post-call days. And then, and then you've earned that time. And I think it's, it's expensive. We're expensive. Um, 
And we, and for those of the students in the room, we are, as my chair says, we are a yes, conditional yes department. We provide a service. And so, for example, when Dallas had its horrible snowmageddon in February and the whole world stopped, my residents and my colleagues showed up for work. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's that expectation. Um, and so extra stuff that you get to do, I think you have to earn that at least in the beginning. Yeah. Thanks, Aditi. And Erica, you know, I would say that I think part of this also is incentives. You heard Doug say it costs money, right? And he doesn't have a bottomless pit as does, you know, no chair does, right? So you have to have, in our current environment, you have to have something that's worth the money. But you could imagine a situation where we made wellness more worth it. So how does that happen? Well, right now, what is the motivation for hospitals and health systems? The Joint Commission comes in and they say, you need to make sure everyone has boot covers in the OR, right? They do. We, in fact, we got dinged because we didn't have enough boot covers. So what happens? The hospital spends, it doesn't matter, any amount of money to buy more boot covers because if they don't, then their federal funding is at risk. And yet how many studies have tied boot covers to patient safety? Right? Zero. But wellness, provider burnout, study after study has shown that burned out providers make more medical errors and cause patient harm. So why isn't the Joint Commission coming in and saying, here's the problem. Your employees are too burned out. You need to show year-over-year improvement in that, or you will get your funding taken away. And then the motivation for the health system is to say to Dr. Bacon, hey, I want what do you, how much money do you need to make your employees less burned out and to improve their wellness? But until, that, until that's the motivation, until we have those incentives aligned correctly, then chairs can only do so much. So I, I really think we all need to be pushing at that level to say we need incentives that align with research and align with what we need as practitioners because we're the ones out there fighting the fight and we're going to work in the snow and we're working through COVID. And so you know, we need to have this. And, and that fight has to be coming from our whole community. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Erica. Hi, my name is Mira Bassan. I'm a fourth year medical student, and I just want to say thank you for the podcast. Thank you, Mira. Um, my question is for Dr. Ambardikar. Um, it's two parts. First, what drew you to specifically peds burns? And secondly, you wear a lot of different hats, as you've told us. And my question is, how do you feel clinically you still get the time to be available and there for your patients to undergo some very you know, traumatic things and feel that you can do that, be there for your residents, and also continue your research for anyone that wants to go beyond just clinical or just stick with clinical and try venturing out? Yeah, thank you for those two very, very good questions. Uh, there's not very many of us that do pediatric burn anesthesia and talk about it. So it's quite a niche area. And to be very honest, when I landed in Dallas, um, there was a need. And uh, I thought, okay, I can teach myself. I had never done burns in residency, never done burns in fellowship. In fact, I had never done burns as a faculty member at CHOP. And so I that testimony to you have to go to a program where you learn how to learn. I taught myself how to do burns. I taught myself how to figure it out, and I'm really proud of that. And I get to now teach others to do it, too. Um, so opportunity, again, to work at a really great place and take care of some vulnerable patients. Um, my residents will tell you that I'm busy, but when I'm in the OR, I'm in the OR. And so I sit in the back of the OR with them and do a little bit of work, but also I'm there with them. I think 
I actually really love my OR days because I can use that as an excuse to not answer emails and to not answer my phone calls and from various individuals around the institution. Um, it is why I chose this job and I don't ever want to get into a leadership role where I won't be in the operating room because I actually really enjoy taking care of patients. And, um, so actually, so clinical work is my respite in some ways. I know that sounds really funny, but uh, those days are actually easier than my days that are filled with meetings with people all over the institution. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, it did. Thank you. Thanks, Aditi. I love one thing that you said, which is that you feel like you really, what was key was knowing how to learn. And I, I love this because I ha sometimes have residents who will say to me, you know, I'm, all, I'm about to graduate. And I feel like I don't know everything yet. And I say to them, you definitely don't know everything yet. Neither do I, right? What you have, I hope, when you graduate from residency are the building blocks so that you can continue learning and building as you go on for the rest of your career. And I bet that Dr. Bacon would say he doesn't know everything yet either. So it's an ongoing process. I am amazed at my ignorance every day. The one thing that I would love to comment about is, you know, I, I spend at least one day clinically a week in the OR, and I'm the backup when somebody's sick or something. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the disaster quarterback, if you will. And <clears throat> as one of my faculty said, you know, Dr. Bacon, for the number of cases you do, you're up in front of us at M&M an awful lot. <laughs> but my OR days are also, I'm a, I am a physician and a clinician first and foremost. And I, that's what I love. And the other thing that I love, and I don't know if you see this, but when the medical students come to me for the chair letter, I love that time. I love it when the residents come in. I have an open door policy. If the door is open, come on in. Whatever it is I'm doing, I stop. If, whether it's a faculty member, a resident, a medical student, that's where, you know, that's my engagement. And that's what keeps me sane when I have to go and sit with all the other chairs and hear about our budget crisis or that crisis or whatever else is going on. And, you know, that rejuvenates me and that's what keeps me going. And I think the other thing is it's all about balance. It's about doing many different things. We're anesthesiologists. We all probably have a little bit of ADHD because we all like to do this and that. And, you know, it's really kind of, you're not really having fun unless your hair's on fire and you're flying at Mach 3, right? So um, that's from Top Gun, by the way. Um, I'm glad somebody got the reference down there. Um, but that's, I think that's part of it as well. And, and, you know, I think you really illustrated that beautifully that, you know, when you're in the OR, you're in the OR and you're teaching and you're enjoying and you're taking care of patients. I've always said that I've been really blessed with an anesthesia career in that I get to be with people at their most vulnerable. I get to see there are two things that still, I'm still amazed at every time I see them. The first is the beating heart in somebody's chest for open heart surgery. I'm a reformed cardiac anesthesiologist. And the other is birthing of a baby, seeing a new life come into the world. It is always it's just a, an, an incredible honor to be present with patients at that time. Remember that. You know, we talk about our careers or this or that. That, to me, is what it's all about. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the question. Yeah, thank you. Hi, um, my name is Larissa. I'm a CA3 at Stanford. Uh, thank you so much for coming and sharing your time with us today. Thanks, Larissa. Um, I had a question specifically, Dr. Ampadakar. You had mentioned um, kind of dealing with imposter syndrome as moving through these different stages of your life. And I think as um, medical trainees, we also face that at many times. I know I've struggled with that a lot through various career stages, still do. Um, do you have any advice for how you process that, work through it, keep going through it? 
And I'm just going to repeat the question a little bit because I don't know how well that mic got it. Mm-hmm. So the question is for everyone and for the recording is about imposter syndrome. So Aditi had mentioned, you know, the fact that she even now, well into her career, still feels imposter syndrome, as do all of us, I think. And so the question is, do you have any advice for folks, especially trainees who are, are feeling it now and then going into being junior faculty who we know feel this and suffer from it as to how to approach it, how to deal with it? Can you hear me? Yes. I think it's important to acknowledge that everyone it. I think you're going in and out. Yeah. Um, I want. I have a mentor still, Dr. Schwartz. He's recently retired, and he said to me, "I have imposter syndrome when I go and stand up in front of a big crowd and speak." And so, I think that's the first step. I think the second step is. Um, you just have you have to take advantage of where you are and what you're doing, and so it's okay to speak up. That's you. Usually, you've been given that opportunity because somebody has believed in you to be there, and so if you exercise your voice and you do it more often, it gets a little bit more comfortable. And then finally, I think it's important to know that you have to be around your people, right? So you find your people, you find your passion, you find your joy, and when you when you're around your people, that syndrome is not as bad. Um, so I know that's not a great answer to your question, um, but I think you have to know that you're in those roles because you're deserving of them and um, go do your best job. Yeah, I think that's huge. And, you know, I would just add that I think those of us who are in attending roles, especially senior attending roles, chair roles, program director roles, we have to talk about our mistakes. We have to talk about our failures because that's how hopefully our trainees and our medical students can feel like, oh, okay, you know, it's okay when I make a mistake too. And the fact that I've made one and hopefully even the fact that I've made one and I feel like I can talk about it doesn't make me a bad doctor. It doesn't make me a failure. It just makes me the same as everyone else. And I really try. I tell my CA1s every year a story of when I was an intern and had a a patient death. I had a a really bad outcome. And I did not at the time have any knowledge that this, you know, wasn't the complete end of my career, that it didn't mean I was a terrible doctor. And I felt incredibly, incredibly isolated by that. And I didn't even tell anyone. I wasn't willing to talk about that for almost 10 years because I felt like it was so embarrassing. And it wasn't until I started to hear other people's stories that I felt like it wasn't just me. And I think we have to tell those stories. It's why I tell it to my C1s every year. And I would encourage everyone, faculty, those of you who are trainees, CA3s, talk to the CA1s. Tell them about when you have made a medical error. Tell them about when you've had a bad outcome. And if you haven't yet, you will, because we all will. And when it happens, don't be afraid to talk about it and make sure that your trainees and your students know about it so that they can know, hey, we all make mistakes. It's how we learn. It's how we grow. And the other thing is when you know somebody's made a mistake, it's really important to support them. I had a senior, one of our senior people was changing out an endotracheal tube and lost the airway, airway and the patient died. And he was beside himself. This guy with 35 years experience and, you know, can I really do this job? Where I work, we, we have, we're the level one trauma center. We get all sorts of really crazy stuff. And I said to him, I said, no, Dwayne, this could have happened. You did everything right. This could have happened to any of us. Please relax. You're going to be okay. And, you know, the imposter syndrome can paralyze you. And it's really, unfortunately, it's all you. Because, as you said, 
Somebody believed in you. Somebody thinks you can do this. And I know that each and every resident that we graduate can walk into any operating room anywhere and figure out what the problem is and fix it because we have put them through that kind of stressful environment. And they all oftentimes don't feel that, but I know they can. And I know that when I promote faculty to doing certain things, they may not feel comfortable doing it. Being outside your comfort zone is good for you. Lord knows my dean keeps doing that to me all the time. Uh, and... Um, <clears throat> I'm not the world's expert on anything, and I've just I've, I've come to I've come to realize that I do the best job I can with what I got in front of me, and you know if that's not good enough for people, well then please help me become better. Thank you, and thanks for the question. All right, let's take one final question, and then we're going to wrap up. Hey, my name my name's Andrew. I'm from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm familiar with Dr. Bacon. Um, I, I am new to the ACRAC podcast, but I, I love it so far. Thank so you. Thank you as well. Um, but I have a question kind of for both of you. Dr. Bacon mentioned that his son uh, is a police officer and, you know, has experience with PTSD. And also Dr. Ambardikar uh, experiences a lot of pediatric burns, a lot of very emotionally challenging situations. Um, how do you guys personally cope? I know medical schools and residence programs often offer employee assistance programs and ways to reach out. But, you know, how do you, you know, take that and move forward? Like, how do you incorporate it into your personal life and really separate yourself cl clinically, like, without becoming a robot? And I'm just going to repeat the question again because that, that mic is a little low. So the question is, you know, in reference, uh, Dr. Bacon, you mentioned a son who has PTSD. And, and Dr. Bardikar, you mentioned, you know, the struggle with, with your pediatric burns and how that can be tough. And we all know, you know, it's Andrew, Andrew right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as Andrew said, that we have kind of support networks for faculty. I think it's required, in fact, by the ACGME. So every residency has this and for faculty, too. But the question is, you know, what advice do you have? How do you cope when things get really tough, when you're faced with a difficult situation or a difficult outcome or a difficult day at work? Um, either one of you can start. Um, I, I have a flippant answer that I won't use, but um, for, for me, the, um, I, I kind of trained in an era where you didn't talk about stuff, where you, know, it, you, you, just, you, you learn to compartmentalize it. And for me, the psychic wall broke down when my mother passed, and I really didn't handle that well. <clears throat> but as a chair, that helped me understand what was going on with everybody else. Um, and so I am fortunate that my current wife is in the profession. Um, you know, she has her issues, and, and I understand that shoulder dystocia is absolutely terrifying, even to us, but even more so to them. Um, and, you know, having somebody that I can talk to who can understand it, who I can bounce ideas off is really critically important. I see in a lot of the single faculty, I get my most venomous emails over trivia from my single faculty, independent of gender, because they don't have anybody to decompress with. And that's where family and everybody becomes really, really important. I worry about my son because he's single. And he is, he grew up in, you know, a very middle class environment. He did not, you know, he did not see dead people. He did not see child abuse. He did not see, and, you know, and now he's out there every day dealing with it and in an environment where people really don't like police at the moment. Um, <clears throat> and so I worry about him and he seems to have become more and more withdrawn. And that I think is a real problem. 
Um, and I really, you know, I, I, we as physicians, you know, we're, we're all healthy. We're all okay. We don't need to worry about it. And at the end of the day, we do. And we need, you need to be on the lookout for your colleagues. And it doesn't matter whether you're a resident or a medical student or an attending. You need to be on the lookout. And if you, you, know, you don't feel comfortable, talk to somebody. Like, come to me and say, hey, look, I'm really worried about Dr. X because you know, I've been watching this and, and he's not himself and, or she's not herself and something's really bugging her. And, you know, sometimes I can go and talk to them or I can I know who their friends are to kind of figure out what's going on and say, hey, maybe we really need to support this person right now. And, you know, that's, I think, the most helpful thing. Yeah, I think the first thing to remember is we're all human, even the faculty members that are doing cases with you in the operating room. And I think relating to the people with whom we work makes people feel comfortable to speak up and speak out. Um, we have some systems in place in the residency where they don't have to answer these questions every other week, but we send out something called a fuel gauge. And it really is just a, how full is your tank? And I, I reach out to every resident that says that they're half tank or lower. Checking in, everything okay, anything I can do. And you know, some residents don't respond and that's okay, but at least they know you're there. And so I, again, encourage you to find, for those of you in recruitment, to find those departments where you know that those people exist. Talk to the residents, see if they feel supported. We have a tremendous wellness center on campus just for our med students and residents um, that is open door policy for almost 24 seven. Um, and then as for me, it's I have a physician husband who gets it. Um, my kids are learning all the medical terms too. Uh, but you know, I go home, I play on the piano with the boys, I run around the block with them. And I think that there is that, and I do worry, I worry about my single residents or the residents that have moved to Dallas and don't have a support system. And actually during the pandemic, that was my biggest fear was that we were going to marginalize or isolate those right because of all the social distancing. And we had some things in place where we had some buddy check-ins. I don't think it lasted very long, but um, we, we tried putting those things in place too. Yeah. Thanks to both of you. You know, I, I think this ties in really well to the last question about imposter syndrome. And I would say that if just like with imposter syndrome, we have to be willing to talk about it. So when you have a tough day or a tough patient outcome, or you're going through a tough time in your life, whether that's related to work or whether it's related to things outside of work, it's not a sign of weakness to reach out for help. It's actually a sign of strength. And I think we as leaders need to make that clear to our faculty, to our trainees, that it is not good to just not show up at work, but to reach out and say, I don't think I can be safe at work. I need some time. That's a sign of strength and self-awareness. I want that in my trainees. I want them to feel like they can do that, that they can be comfortable. So we need to provide the, the kind of environment that makes people feel like they can reach out. And I have seen people who have really been struggling, who need some time, and when just knowing that they can have the time and then getting it, even if it's just three or four days, can turn it around. I mean, people go away in a bad place. They get some help, support, whether that's from family or a professional. And they come back like a different person. But you have to be willing to give them that time, and they have to know it's okay to ask for it. I think that's really, really key. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's give a big thank you to our guests, Dr. Ambarnikar and Dr. Bagan. Thank you for being here. And a huge thank you to our audience. It's been so much fun to be in front of a live audience for the first time ever. We hope to do more of these. And I will end, as I always do, by saying, and I truly mean it, 
Thank you for everything you do. What you do every day is truly important and valued. Thank you. All right. Well, that was an absolute blast to do an episode in front of a live audience. We will definitely do some more. And I hope that many of you out there will consider being in the audience for future episodes. Let us know what you thought of this one. Go to the website, atgrack.com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at Akrak Podcast. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Join us anywhere you like. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and become a patron. You can also make donations anytime you like by going to paypal.me slash or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who've already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to Ryan Okonski, our fantastic social media manager who was at the live episode, and, of course, to our production assistants, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli and Dr. April Liu. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Dennis Kuo, who composed our original ACRAC music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Zambardikar and Bacon, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.